Okay, good morning. This uh, Shabbos we have the privilege of reading a double parsha, both Vayakel and Pekudei. And of course, the uh, obvious question uh, when one looks at and reviews Vayakel and Pekudei, the question that begs to be asked is, why are we reading this again? We've just read all of this with Parshios Truma and Tetzaveh. We just saw all the dimensions and the details and the architecture and the engineering and the utensils and their placement and the garments of the Kohanim and so on and so forth. We just studied all of this. Why are we revisiting it? Why are we back? Why are we back here? Why are we back here again? So uh, this is obviously a very pressing question, and the answer to it, or not the, there are a number of answers to it, um, can uh, can be understood. In the context of the Cheta Egel, Kisisa, we spoke about it a little bit last Shabbos afternoon with the fact that, at least for Rashi, chronologically it's out of order. The Cheta Egel, the sin of the golden calf, occurred before God rewarded us with the Mishkan, and yet the Torah chooses to place the giving, the building of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, before the Cheta Egel. And whenever, whenever there's a deviation from the chronological order, and instead... Hashem chose to organize the Torah thematically, one can't help but ask, why did He want the theme to unfold in that way? We talked about that last Shabbos afternoon at length. Beis Alevi, the Meshechachma, the Kuzari, and uh, putting them all together to create an approach and an answer. We're not going to take the time this morning, but I want to share that with you because it is the pressing question. And in fact, it's a question that obviously bothered Armafarshim to the extent that they say very little on Vayakel and Pekudei. Essentially, they offered their comments, they offered their insights on Shuma and Tetzava. If you turn the pages, if you flip through even of the Stone Chumash, which only includes comment of Rashi, you'll see an inordinate amount of text and very little Rashi. Because Rashi and with him, most of the Mephoshim said what they had to say on Truma and Tetzava. Vayaka and Pekude seems almost entirely extraneous. I'll just tell you one quick insight that I've shared before from Rav Pam Zatzal. He says one major difference between Truma and Tetzava and Vayaka and Pekude is, in Truma and Tetzava it says, So shall you do. So shall you do. And here it says, So they did. So the Rav Pam says it is so unusual... It is so unusual for someone who starts out on a project to see it through to fruition. It's so unusual to set out on a journey to complete a goal, to arrive at a destination, actually to follow through, to finish what you started, that the very fact that the Torah had this monumental project of building a place where God's presence would be felt, and Moshe finished, completed that project, that in itself is worthy of repeating the entire story. And that's a message for all of us, the importance of Mascha B'mitzvah Omrim Lugmor, the concept of finishing what you started. The concept of going from V'chein Yasu, from so shall you do, V'chein Yasu, so they did. How many of us go from that and how many of us have half-finished projects sitting in our garage, uh, all kinds of projects around the house that we started but never finished? That's one approach. The Beis HaLevi has a different approach. Beis HaLevi says, if you notice in Vayakal and Pekude, the expression of the Kasher Tziva, Hashem Moshe, appears over and over and over again. Truma and Tetzava, we just had the commandments of the details. Here are the utensils, here's how to build them, here's the construction, here are the dimensions, here's what to do. In Vayakil and Pekude, when all of that is given again, but it is, uh, includes the phrase, as God commanded. And says the Beis HaLevi, Rav Yashaber Salavechek, the Rav's great-grandfather, why do we have that expression used over and over again? Because the core violation of the Chet Egel was that the Jewish people sought to connect to God. Their intention was noble. They sought a, a tangible, physical intermediary through which they could connect to the divine. And Hashem's answer to them is, you know what? It's nice that you have noble intentions. You want to have an even stronger relationship with me. It's great that you were waiting, expecting the luchos to arrive. And when Moshe did not descend on your timetable with the luchos, you tried to replace it with another physical means through which you could connect to me. That's a nice, noble intention. But says God, it's not for you to design. It's for me. It's not your world. It's my world. It's not your relationship. It's our relationship. And so Hashem says, if you want to connect to me, you got to do it on my terms, not yours. Of course, genuine spirituality requires a person's investment, requires a person's effort, requires the person to contribute. But ultimately, the rules and the boundaries and the details of the relationship come from the divine. They come from Hashem. So Hashem says, the need to connect to me through something tangible, that's valid and legitimate. To create it on your own is not. And so He says, if you want to connect to me through something physical, no problem. 
I'm going to give you something called a mishkan, a tabernacle. You'll cross the threshold, the entrance of that enterprise. You'll be in the chutz or the courtyard of this place and you'll feel my presence. You'll have a physical embodiment, a tangible place that you can feel me. But you have to do it on my terms. And says to Beis Alivi, that's why, but Hashem gives, the Rabbeinu Bechaya says, Hashem gives the Rafu Kodem Lamaka. Hashem gives the, um, the cure, the, 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 the medicine, before He even inflicts the damage. So, so too, He gave us the Mishkan in Truma Tetzava before the Cheta Egel and Kisisa. But then afterwards, when it repeats it, it says, Kasher Hashem is Moshe, over and over and over again to tell us that the Mishkan reflects our legitimate need to connect to something tangible, but only kasher tziva Hashem, only on God's terms. It can't be our own imagination. It can't be our own ruminations. It can't be our own creativity designing a new way of connecting to Hashem, a radical new method. You know, for me, as I said, for me, rest on Shabbos is driving to the beach and doing yoga. For me, rest on Shabbos is, is getting a massage. For me, rest, and so I'm going to, God, I like your idea, but I'm going to tweak it. For me, a minion is not ten men over bar mitzvah. For me, it's, let's include women. For me, a rabbi is not this. Uh, anyone could be a rabbi. For me, but rather, it has to be kasher tziva Hashem as Moshe. It, the need to connect, to be spiritual, is legitimate. But the rules, the boundaries, have to be respected. And says the Beis Halevi, that's why kasher tziva Hashem as Moshe is repeated over and over again. It's come also against slippery slope, because if you give in in one way, who knows where it's going to end? And that's why it has to be Kasher Tziva Hashem. We have to follow Hashem. One other word of introduction. One other word of introduction. And it's an an introduction that brings us full circle. The Ramban, Nachmanides, if you remember a number of weeks or months ago, when we began Sefer Shmos, I don't know if I mentioned it. I likely did, because I like this Ramban. But the Ramban in his introduction to the book of Exodus, to the book of Shmos says, This is a story of Galus to Geula. Right? The Ramban introduces each of the volumes of Chumash by telling us what the transition of the story is. That the narrative is going to take us on a journey from point A to point B. For example, Sefer Bamidbar, says the Ramban, is the journey from Nais to Teva. One is going from a miraculous lifestyle to a natural lifestyle. Um, so each of the books, the Ramban takes us on a journey from point A to point B. There's a development, a progression of our birth as a people. Right? We talked about this. The book of Bracious is the birth of a family. Book of Shmos is the birth of a people. Birth of the book of uh, Vayikra is going to be the book of the birth of a holy sacred people with an, a, a, a sacred mission, and so on and so forth. So the Ramban in his introduction to Shmos says it's the story of going from Galos to Geula. Exile to redemption. Now, if I asked you to define exile to redemption, normally a person would define it as going from outside of Israel to Israel. Yeah. Going from outside of Israel to Israel. I know, uh, I know a person who lives in Israel who once uh, shared with me, um, he says, you know, Jews who live in Gaulus, outside of Israel, refer to themselves as diaspora Jews. I live in the diaspora. It makes them feel much better to say diaspora. But you live in the exile, he said to me. He said, so don't console or comfort yourself by saying you live in the diaspora. You live in the exile. Now, my response to him is, my response to him is that he's 100% accurate. It's true. We do live in the Gullus. It's incumbent on every one of us to be planning and struggling and thinking about how and when we are going to move to Israel. As I often try to say, uh, it's legitimate to not be living in Israel. It's not legitimate to not be struggling with when one can move to Israel. And every one of us needs to be or should be doing that. So Gullus is outside of Israel, but he's not entirely accurate. He's wrong in some ways. And let me explain to you what I mean. Uh, because that's the question on the Ramban. What do you mean this is a story of Gullus to Geula? A story of exile to redemption? Vayaka Pakudei. This coming week's two parshios we'll read. Sefer Shmos, the book of Exodus ends, and where are the Jewish people? They're in the desert. So how could you say the book ends with Geula? How could you, how could you describe this as a journey from exile to redemption, as if the book ends with redemption? Where are the people geographically? We're not yet in Israel. We don't get into Israel, of course, until the book of Yehoshua, until after Chumash. So how could there, it's a story of Gullus to less Gullus. We're out of Egypt. But how can you say it's a story of Gullus to Geula. That's the Ramban's statement. And uh, Rav Shechter liked to quote in Shir often this question on the Ramban. What do you mean it's Galus to Geula? Where is the Geula? So, 
Understand that in, in the language of our prophets, if you look in the Navi, they use the terms Galas and Geula to refer to geographic locations. Israel is Geula, and outside of Israel is Galas. But the truth is that there's a, and that's a, a second tier of understanding those terms. But the primary way of understanding those terms is not a geographic description, but a metaphysical description, a spiritual description. What do I mean by that? Look at the words of Chazal. In the beginning of the Torah, in the beginning of Sefer Bereshis, God creates a world, and in the beginning of that world, the Haaretz sohu vavohu v'choshech al sahom. The world was uh, empty and desolate and darkness on the surface of the deep. Our rabbis understood that each of these terms, Chazal and Bereshis Rabbah and the Medrash, understood that each of these terms represents one of the four Goliaths. We as a people have experienced four exiles. Four periods we were in exile. And these words are hints to those exiles. So, Bavo, the Choshech, Apneitahom. Which was Choshech, the third exile, darkness. Say Chazal in the Medrash Rabbah, the dark, the Choshech, the exile of Choshech of darkness is Golos Yavan, was the Greek, the Greek exile. Now, where were the Jews living during the Greek exile? What was the Greek exile? We were under Greek oppression. It was the Hellenist period. It was the time of Hanukkah. They defiled the temple. Where were we living under the Greek exile? We were living in Yerushalayim. We were living with access to Harabais. So for Chazal, they understood the concepts of Golas and Geula, of, of uh, exile and redemption, not as geographic descriptions, but descriptions of Hashra'as Hashchina. Descriptions of God's intense dwelling, of the ability to feel God's presence in our midst, of a metaphysical description, of an access to the Almighty in an almost tangible fashion. So they could describe that Choshech is Golos Yavan, darkness is the Greek exile, despite the fact that we lived within the boundaries of Israel during the Greek exile. So if you understand that, now you can understand what the Ramban was saying. The Ramban is not suggesting that the book of Shemos is a book that goes from exile to redemption that we should be expecting in our parshios this week of Vayakel and Pekude to end up in Israel. That's not necessarily Geula. That's one understanding, a geographic understanding of Geula. But what the Ramban intends is Hashras Hashchina. Because at the end of this volume, at the end of this book of Shemos, the Mishkan has been built. Its walls have been assembled. Curtains hung, utensils fashioned, big day kahuna sewn. Everything is in place, everything's ready to go. Hashem is ready to bring his dwelling down. And what's the final verse of Pekudai that we'll read? The last verse? What happens? Even a few verses before that. The glory of God filled the Mishkan. In fact, God's presence was kind of almost too intense if one can say such a thing. The Mishkan was overflowing with God's presence such that Moshe couldn't even approach the Mishkan. The end of Parshas Pekudeh. Of course, you have to understand exactly what that means and there seems to be a contradiction. Elsewhere it says Moshe did enter the Mishkan. But what one sees clearly is that the book of Shemos concludes with God dwelling on earth by entering his Mishkan, feeling his presence, Hashra Sashchina. So understand that for the Ramban, this book that we are concluding today, the Shabbos, Shmos is the journey from a people in exile, living among a pagan, idolatrous nation, unfamiliar with the unity of God's existence, influenced by their secular, paganistic, idolatrous surroundings. And it ends with redemption. Redemption, not geographic redemption of being in Israel physically, but ends with the redemption of a knowledge and certainty of one God, having experienced His miracles in Egypt, the splitting of the sea, hearing His voice at Harsinai, understanding and embracing His commandments of Nasa and Nishma, and finally welcoming His presence down to this world through His dwelling in the Mishkan. That is Golas to Geula. Okay? That's by way of introduction. Now, Vayakam Pekudeh are a little bit difficult to study, as I alluded to, because so few commentaries on them. 
essentially they are rehashing what we saw in Truma in Tetzava. So what I'd like to do is, in the second of the two parashas we're going to read, in Pekudei, I want to, rather than analyze in depth any few specific verses, I want to share a few miscellaneous comments of the Mepharshim, of the commentators, in the parsha of Pekudei. Okay? So Pekudei begins in the stone Chumash, Page 530, 531, 530, These are the Pekudim. What are Pekudim? The countings. This is the accounting, this is the reckoning of the Mishkan. Which Mishkan, you might ask? Mishkan Ha'edus. Now why would you ask which Mishkan? You would never ask which Mishkan. There only ever has been one Mishkan. This was commandment, the origin, the first time a Mishkan was commanded. So right away we're troubled. What do you mean? Why does it repeat the word Mishkan to, to be able to qualify it and specify it as Mishkan Ha'edus? Anyway, these are the accountings that Moshe had done of the funds, of the budget, of the campaign necessary to build the Mishkan, the Mishkan of Edus, that were reckoned by Moshe. Uh, the efforts of the Levim was under the authority of Itamar, the son of Aaron Akoin. And who was the architect of the Mishkan? ben Uri ben says Again, it's unusual. The Torah is introducing it to us as if we didn't know that. We've already heard about Betzalel. Before, this is not the first time we're hearing Batsalo, or Itamar for that matter. Vito and with him, Ahaliyav ben Achisamach Lamatedan, Kharash Vekoshev, Virokem Batchilas, Uvargaman, Uvasolas, Hashani, Vesashesh. Ahaliyav, who's from the tribe of Dan, a carver, a weaver, an embroiderer, turquoise, purple, scarlet wool with linen. He is Kharash Vekoshev. Choshev here means even more, Malachas Machsheves. This is a, a skill that takes. Uh, it's a skill with a certain acumen. So that's what's happening here at the beginning. Rashi tells us why is the term Mishkan repeated twice. Eila pekude ha-Mishkan, Mishkan ha-Edus. Why do you have to clarify which Mishkan? There only ever was one Mishkan. Says Rashi, Mishkan, Mishkan, Shnei Pa'amim, Remez l'Mikdash, Shenis Mashchein, B'Shnei Churbanen, Al Avonosein Shal Yisrael. This is a allusion to the fact that there will be two bit bate Mikdash, that will be destroyed because of the Jewish people's unworthiness. So the double reference, Eila Pekude HaMishkan, Mishkan HaEdus. The Mishkan, of course, is the predecessor of the Beis um, HaMikdash. So the double language of Mishkan is to tell me, says Rashi, that there will be two Batei Mikdash that will be destroyed. Now you'll say, if you look at the Sifzei Chachamim, he asks a question. I don't understand how you could learn that. Why? What's the question? How could you tell me that the double usage of Mishkan is to tell me that there'll be two Batei Mikdash that will be destroyed because of the unworthiness of the Jewish people? How many extra Mishkan words do you have? Only one extra. Only one of them is extra. Yeah. So you should only be able to learn one thing, not two things. Rashi says you learn two things, that there'll be two Batei Mikdash that will be destroyed. Says the Sivzei Chacham and Vim Tomar, Mishkan. Only one of the usages of Mishkan is extra. The first time it says it, you need it to know what we're talking about. Exactly. So he answers because it says Eila Pekudei HaMishkan Mishkan. So it should have either said Eila Pekudei HaMishkan HaMishkan HaEdus or Eila Pekudei Mishkan Mishkan HaEdus. Why does it have a hey once? So to tell me that the usage of one of the Mishkans is for the actual Mishkan, the hey and the extra Mishkan teach me the two Batei Mikdash that will be built and ultimately will be destroyed because of the Jewish people's unworthiness. But a fair question of the Sifsei Chachamim. Why do we refer to it as the Mishkan HaEdus? Says Rashi, who, what is the Mishkan of testimony? What, what's the testimony here? What's the testimony? Says Rashi, Edus li Yisrael shaviter lehem akadosh baruch hu amaisa ego shrei hishchashchinas obeneim. Why do we call the Mishkan the Mishkan haEdus, the Tabernacle of Testimony? What is it testifying to? Says Rashi, it's testifying to the fact that God forgave the Jewish people after the Chet Egel, because the fact that He chose to live with them. 
He moved in with us. He came down to this world and brought His presence, His Hashra Hashchina, even after He was prepared to wipe us out and eliminate us, shows Sheviter Lahem HaKadosh Baruch He was Mevater, he, he overlooked, He was forgiving, He was able to dismiss it and move on. Right? So very beautiful Rashi, that every time we mention the word Mishkan, it should remind us of God's capacity to forgive. Now again, it particularly makes sense within the Beis HaLevi, the Meshachach, the Kuzari, I mentioned that the Mishkan was the perfect antidote to the Chet Egel. Chet Egel was the people's need for something tangible. God says, fine, legitimate, you have that need, you got to do it on my terms, here is a Mishkan, something tangible through which to connect to me. So if we understand the Mishkan as the perfect response or antidote to the Chet Egel, then we can understand why the Mishkan is called a Mishkan Ha'edus. Because it testifies to the fact that God was willing to forgive us and gave us a proper channel, an outlet for this legitimate need. Which was incredibly gracious of Hashem. Who could have said, even if it was a legitimate need, the bottom line is, what you guys did was egregious. It was terrible. It was horrible. It's unforgivable. It's intolerable. But instead, Hashem says... I'm willing, to, uh, I'm willing to forgive. Forgive, not only forgive. He could have said, I'm willing to forgive, but I'm not building you anything. And I'm not giving you anything. Because your need for something tangible is what got you into trouble in the first place. But Hashem is gracious and kind and compassionate. So not only does He forgive, A, but B, then He provides for that, what He obviously feels is a legitimate need, for us to have a tangible means through which to connect. Please hold your questions. The clay yakar, hold your questions. The Kleyakar, well, before we get to the Kleyakar, the Balaturim of Yaakov ben Asher says, Ele Pikude, the word Pikude is spelled complete with a Vav. You could have spelled Pikude sans the Vav, without a Vav. Why do you have a Vav? That's not such a great question to me, because Pikude could be spelled with the Vav or without the Vav. It's not, I don't know that it's compelling that it should have been without the Vav. Okay. Malay Vav. Why, what's, what, what accounting is going on here? Why is there an accounting taking place? So the Medrash Yalkut Shimoni fills in. The Yalkut Shimoni says that they completed the Mishkan. You know, at the end of the Megillah reading, you know what the most inspiring part of Megillah reading is for me? The last line. That Mordechai was, Ratzoi Lerov Echav. Mordechai was beloved to most, not everybody. The Megillah doesn't say he was beloved to everybody. The Megillah says that this man, who was the catalyst for their salvation, who almost single-handedly displayed the courage, the strength, the resolve, the tenacity to encourage Esther to stand up, that Mordechai himself would refuse to bow down, that Mordechai, who almost single-handedly was the catalyst for their salvation, saved the lives, saved the Jewish people, was Ratzoi Lerovachov. In the next vote for him, for the Sanhedrin, he still only received a majority. It wasn't unanimous. There were still people who said, we could do better. That to me, as, you know, as a rabbi, as a community leader, is inspiring. To remember that even Mordechai was Ratzoi Lerovachov. I find that very inspiring. So Moshe Rabbeinu also. Moshe, who leads them out of Egypt. Moshe, who challenges Paro and introduces the plagues. Moshe, who takes them across the sea. Moshe begs to Hashem. How many times already in Sefer Shemos of the Jewish people disappointed God and Moshe begs for forgiveness? And you know what happens? The Mishkan is complete. It should be a... T- excuse me, a time of unbridled joy and happiness. And what do the people come and do, says the Yalkut Shimoni? Say to Moshe, you know, um, we've been reviewing the budget and uh, we're reviewing the capital campaign and there's a lot of money that came in and where is it? Where is it? Moshe, empty your pockets. Moshe, we're searching your tent. Could you imagine? We're auditing you, Moshe. We're calling for an audit. Ah, we're a slave nation, Eisvarf, Nebuch, nothing, good for nothing, complaining, reject, ignoramuses. You are Moshe Rabbeinu. We're auditing you, says the Yalkut Shimoni. So Moshe started to do the accounting. And he starts to add it all up. And Moshe's short. 1,000 something something. Moshe's short. And he panics. What's he going to do? He knows he didn't pocket one penny. 
He knows that his integrity is impeccable. He knows that his bookkeeping is transparent. But he starts to panic. And then he remembers, says the Yalkut Shimoni, the vavim, the hooks, the hooks that bind the curtains together that hang the Mishkan, he forgot to include them. Rav Moshe Sternbach writes, Rav Moshe Sternbach writes, why did he forget the hooks? Because he thought they're negligible. They're insignificant. They're unimportant. Right? A little hook. You go to Home Depot. A hook costs gornished. It's less than a dollar. It's 20 cents a hook. It's gornished. But you can have an entire building and without the hooks, you have nothing. So the planks and the walls and the curtains and the everything can be worth tremendous amounts of money. And the gornished insignificant hooks that cost nothing are the necessary part of holding everything together. And says the Moshe Sternbach, what Moshe drew from there, what we are to draw from there is that sometimes it is the acts, it's the hooks that bind us with others that we dismiss and neglect and feel are negligible and insignificant that are the most important things because they bind us together. The Vavim. And that's the letter Vav. Rabbi J.J. Shachter, one of my Rebbeimah teachers, has a beautiful Torah. Why it's the letter Vav. You know, Vav is the letter of... The Vavim, the hooks are called Vavim. The Vav HaChibur. The Vav HaChibur is the Vav that unites, that brings together. Kayin, when he kills Hevel, the Medrash says, you know, we, we talk about the, um, the scarlet letter. Kayin, the Medrash says, had to wear a letter on his forehead. What was the letter he wore on his forehead? The Vav, because he didn't have a hook, he didn't understand what it meant to connect with his brother. Rabbi Shachter points out. So here the, the Kliyakar is going to talk about this. We'll mention this in a moment. So the Balaturim says, why is, the, why is Pekude spelled with the Vav? Because all 600,000 Jews should not suspect him that he took money. Not to suspect him that he took any of the silver. All 600,000 alluded to by the letter Vav. Within this Yaakut Shemoni, you could say it's spelled with the Vav for another reason. Ela Pekude, because it was the Vavim that Moshe had neglected in the Pekude, in the accounting, it's what he remembered last minute that made the accounting complete. Since it was the Vavim, the Vav that made the accounting complete, maybe that's why Pekude is spelled complete with the Vav. Spelled complete with the, with the Vav. By the way, the Shulchanach quotes a custom. Some have a custom that, from the Sefer Torah that every column of the Sefer Torah should begin with the letter Vav to organize the layout of a Sefer Torah that every column is written that begins with the letter Vav. Let's look at the Kliyakar for a moment. Also here on Pasuk Havalaf, this opening Pasuk of the second Parsha Pekudei. Says the Kliyakar, Nechalku ha-mefarshim b'davar im eile koi al-maisa ha-mishkan shehizkir b'seder v'yakel o im koi al-masha yazkir b'parsha zu. Right? Our Parsha begins, Eile! These are the accounting, the reckoning. Well, what's Ela? These. Is these going on what we just completed at the end of Vayakel? Or is Ela meaning what we're about to read in Pekude? What is the Ela referring to? Asks the Kliyakar. And furthermore, one could ask, why is Moshe doing an accounting, an audit, of all that he collected from the silver and the copper, but not from the gold. Why isn't he doing an accounting and audit of all the gold that was collected and what happened with it? He says, is not going on what's about to appear in our parsha, but it's referring back on what was just read in Vayakel. Because they had now in Vayakel, which parallels Truma, right? Pekude parallels Tetzava, which is all about the clothing, the garments of the Kohanim. So the beginning of Pekude is right in between the completion of describing the building of the tabernacle and the introduction to the description of the weaving of the garments of the Kohanim. So all of the silver and the copper was used for the Mishkan, which was now complete. And because Vayakel signifies the conclusion of the uh, building of the Mishkan, Moshe was happy and joyous and was able to submit the audit to show 
that all the money was used properly. Now, why didn't essentially Kliyakar is asking? Why didn't Moshe wait till the end of Pekude? Let the last pasuk of all of Book of Shmos be Ela Pekude Amishkan Ba Big Day Kuhuna. Why didn't he wait to submit the audit till after the Big Day Kuhuna also? Because some of what was uh, raised and gathered and solicited was used for the Big Day Kuhuna also. So why does he sigh? Why does he breathe the sigh of relief? that the Mishkan is complete and he's beyond reproach and submit the audit then, why not wait till after the completion of the Big Day Kuhuna? Says the Kliyakar, Because silver and copper, with their use was completed with the Mishkan. But the Big Day Kahuna also includes gold. So he couldn't yet give the full accounting because some of it was necessary for the Big Day Kahuna. So he couldn't yet submit the complete accounting of everything. He waits for the gold. So if that's the case, one would expect to find at the end of Parshas Bakuday, one would expect to find giving an accounting for the gold just as he did for the silver and the copper at the end of Pekud they give an accounting for the gold now that the big day kahuna are done the answer says the Kliyakar appears in a Medrash this is the Yalkut Shemoni I referenced a moment ago also appears in Shmos Rabbah that when Moshe did this accounting he was short 1,775 shekel and he forgot and he couldn't remember what it was spent on the Medrash says because Moshe struggled to remember where that last 1,700 was the number 1,575 where it went therefore a baskal a heavenly voice emerged saying to Moshe it was used for the Vavim. And that is a fulfillment of the verse that Moshe is Bechobesi Naman, that God trusts Moshe and his integrity remains intact. Why does it say Ha'elef Ushva Ha'meos? The thousand and the seven hundred. It should say thousand and seven hundred. Why the and the? Why the two hays? Moshe at first couldn't remember what happened to this 1,700 plus shekel. And the Jewish people were chasing after him, saying, hurling all kinds of accusations at him. So essentially, what's the Kliyakar answering? Moshe never has to come back and complete the audit on the gold. Why? Because once they accused him on the audit of the gold, of the copper and the silver, and a heavenly voice proclaimed that Moshe is beyond reproach, every ounce is accounted for. So now that he was beyond reproach, no further audits were necessary. When a heavenly voice gives you the endorsement that Moshe is trusted in all my house, the gold is included in that endorsement. And therefore it was unnecessary to complete the audit. Or suggest the Kliyakar that maybe the people never ever gave an accusation. Maybe they weren't the ones who pressured Moshe to do an audit. Maybe it was Moshe on his own. It's a powerful lesson for 
somebody who runs the communal funds, the pushka, the discretionary fund, that even without being asked, you should have regular reports on the funds so that you can remain beyond suspicion, beyond reproach. So listen to what the Kliyakar ends with. He says, normally when you melt metal, it loses some of its volume. Anyone work with metal here? There are impurities. Okay, I've never worked with metal. I don't know. But apparently, says the Kliyakar, maybe in Lemberg, Rav Lundschitz did work with metal. He says, apparently, when you um, melt the metal, it loses its volume or its weight. Not its volume, its weight. So what should have happened is when Moshe provided it to, to um, Itamar and they weighed it, when he was fashioning the utensils themselves, it should have been less than he collected because now it's been... But you know what happened? There was a miracle. It weighed the same. And why did it weigh the same? To be able to keep Moshe, to, for Moshe to be beyond reproach. Because it was a miraculous thing to melt it down and fashion utensils and not have it lose weight from the original amount that was given was miraculous. But why? So that Moshe would be beyond reproach, that he didn't pocket any of these metals. And says the Kliakar, that's why it's called Mishkan Ha'edus. It's called the Mishkan Ha'edus because it is a testimony that God endorses Moshe as a leader. It's a testimony to God's presence because he performed this miracle when it came to the fashioning of the utensils. Okay, so that was the first thing I wanted to see. This notion, the Medrash, the Vavim, the accounting, the uh, Mishkan twice, and this, uh, and this statement of the Kliyakar. Next. B'tzalel. Betzalel was the architect, came from the tribe of Yehuda. The Torah now endorses Betzalel. He's a good guy. He did everything exactly the way God commanded whom? Moshe. Now, I would have written what? He did everything the way Moshe told him. Why would you write he did everything the way God commanded Moshe? You leave out a step. He did everything the way God commanded Moshe. Well, well, when did Moshe command him? So Rashi says, Amar tzivo so Moshe, Amar tzivo so Moshe, en ksevkan, ela kol asher tzivo Hashem, that's Moshe. Rashi picks up on this. It does not say, as Moshe commanded him, but rather it says, as he did, as God commanded Moshe. But he's not Moshe. So why does it tell us this? Even things that his teacher did not tell him. He anticipated what God told Moshe, even if it wasn't the same thing that Moshe told him. What do you mean? Moshe told B'tzalah what was the order as the chief on this construction site. What was the order he should follow of building? So Moshe said... First build. I lost my place. Right. Moshe said, first you build the vessels and then build the Mishkan. First build the furniture and then build the house. What are you talking about? You don't go buy furniture and leave it on the front lawn while you're building the house. You build the house and then you get the furniture. B'tzal says to Moshe, and so, first of all, it's better, it's more appropriate to first build the house than the furniture. He says, and second of all, I think that's what God wants. So Moshe says to him, B'tzal kel ha'isa. What's B'tzal? B'tzal is shade or shadow. You were in the shadow of God because you're right, that's what God told me. So even though I didn't tell you, I didn't relay it to you the same way God told it to me, you anticipated what God wanted. You live in the shadow of Hashem, Bitzalel, that's your name. You anticipated what Hashem wanted and you were pre- prepared to do that above and before even what I told you. Now it doesn't address why would Moshe deviate 
from what Hashem told him to do. It doesn't address that. But the point is, Rashi is explaining, why does the Pasuk say that B'Tzalah listened to all that God commanded Moshe? It should have said B'Tzalah listened to all that Moshe commanded him. To tell us that he even listened to things that God commanded Moshe, different than what Moshe commanded him. If there was a conflict between what Moshe told him to do and what he believed God told Moshe, he followed what God told Moshe. That's Rashi. Look at the Kliyakar, not satisfied. Says the Kliyakar, Perish Rashi, Asher Tzivo, So Moshe, Lo Nehmar, Venira, Shebechinam Dochak Rashi, Lo Marken, Kiladati, Perish HaMikrakachu. He says, you know, Rashi got into this whole thing that Moshe told him something different than he heard, furniture, house, what people do. He says, uh, Rashi came onto all this unnecessarily, totally unnecessarily. He says, here's how I understand it. Yan ki lo matzina b'chol melechaz ha-mishkan, She Moshe, Tzivo, El B'Tzala, Kach Mekach Te'aseh. You don't find anywhere in Truma Tetzava Vayaka Pekudai anywhere that Moshe told B'Tzalel what to do. Ki b'parshas ki si saksiv rei karasi b'shem B'Tzalel v'lo nichtav sham she Moshe higit shem davar al B'Tzalel. All we find is that Moshe recruits B'Tzalel to be the architect, appoints him to be the architect. But we never find that he actually gives him the plans, the drawings, tells him what to do. V'chem b'parshas vayakel. He never actually gives the specs for what to do. Moshe never gave Betzal the details. All he did was the appointment, but he never actually transmitted the details. Nevertheless, Betzal knew exactly what to do. How did he know? Wonders the Kliyakar. Beruach HaKodesh Alav. As Mashatziva Hashem as Moshe. He knew through divine inspiration. He knew as if he received it from Hashem. And that's what the Pasuk means, Kashrut Siva Hashem as Moshe. Vimkein Hutzrach Lomar Kein Kan Asa is Kola Shertziva Hashem as Moshe. Kilohaya Yochaloma Shaasa is Kola Shertziva I love Moshe. Shay Moshe Lotziva Loderach Asiasam. Says the Kliyakar, I don't know why Rashi needed to get into this whole thing. When there was a conflict between the two, he listened to Hashem, but otherwise you're right, he listened to Moshe. Says the Kliyakar, it couldn't say he built according to what Moshe told him, because Moshe never ever told him. He anticipated. And the fact that Rashi says that Moshe told um, B'Tzalel first build the Kalim, the utensils, the furniture, and only then the house, he says, I have no idea where Rashi got it from. Now, if you look at our Rashi, at the end it quotes Gemara Brachos, I didn't look up the Gemara Brachos. But if that's where Rashi got it from, I'm going to go with Rashi. Ki Adarabba, v'pashas v'yakel, hizkir Moshe ha-mishkan t'chila, v'chein b'chomakam maskar ha-mishkan t'chila, z'ulas ma'shinem ha-pashas truma, v'asu ha-rona t'shitim kodl mishkan, v'zelof yishaseidim al-asin kachashin, v'im lama d'zem y'kushu z'u ha-shativa v'asu ha-moshe lo-nemar, k'var amar n'shein z'kushu. Kliyakar says, he says, I don't believe that Moshe ever told B'tzalel that, first build the furniture, then the house. He says, because every time that Moshe relays the order in the Torah, Moshe always references the house first. So there's no reason to believe that. And if Rashi arrived at that conclusion because of this question, why doesn't it say, as Moshe commanded B'tzal, I already gave a good answer to that, says the Kliyakar. So here you have a debate between Rashi and the Kliyakar on the relationship of B'tzal and Moshe. Did Moshe give him the details? And there's a case of a conflict that B'tzal went with Hashem anyway. Or according to the Kliyakar, Moshe gave B'tzal no details. B'tzal had Ruach HaKodesh. He was an architect with divine inspiration. And he, he, he anticipated what Hashem wanted. And that's why the Pasuk relays that B'tzalel built according exactly to what God commanded Moshe. Hold your questions, please. Next comment. If you go to Perak Lamates, Pasuk Al, chapter 39, verse 1. Chapter 39, verse 1. Now we have the beginning of Aaron's clothing. The turquoise, purple, scarlet, 
they made uh, clothing to serve in the Mikdash, in the Mishkan. They made holy clothing for Aaron just as Hashem commanded. Kasher Tziva Hashem Es Moshe. Just as Hashem commanded. Says the Orachayim HaKadosh. Tam Omro Kain Bechol Prat Uprat. Why do we keep revisiting this expression as God commanded Moshe? I mentioned at the outside one reason, the Beis Alevi says, because it's an antidote for the Chayta Egel. When it came to the Egel, they didn't do what God commanded. They applied their own creativity and did their own what they wanted. That's why now in Bayaka Pakudeh over and over and over says the Beis Alevi, as God commanded, as God commanded, as God commanded. But the Yorachayim is also bothered by this question. Why with every detail? So the Rechaim gives an answer. He says, you know, Moshe really had nothing to do with the actual construction. Moshe was a little left out. So in order to give Moshe a portion of the building of the Mishkan, with every act of building, of sewing, of embroidering, of constructing, it mentions as God commanded Moshe. By including Moshe in as the recipient of the commandment, Moshe gains a chilek, Moshe gains a portion in the building of the Mishkan. He says, furthermore, the people, this was given for them to say out loud. You know, some people have a minog to say, you know, uh, that's the, that's the, the um, politically correct version. Mikubalim Chasidim at the birth of Chasidis would introduce before doing a mitzvah they say what do they say? Not the Henini Mukhan. No, what do they say? Why am I blanking out right now? No, no, no. We say Henini Mukhan Zuman. The Shem Brichu. That's what they say. The Shem Brichu. This was introduced by early Chasidim. The Chsam Sofer, by the way, writes. Sam Sofer, who was an early opponent, writes that this L'shem Kutshu Brichu, we don't find it anywhere, and one should not be saying it before a bracha. We already have the bracha to precede the mitzvah. And he has a very strong language, which was actually censored out of some versions of the Sam Sofer, where he speaks in very harsh language of Hasidim. He, he quotes a Pasuk, but he replaces, he inserts the word Hasidim instead of the word that's there in the Pasuk to describe those who distort and pervert the way of Hashem. And he calls that Hasidim, who say this L'shem Kudsho Brichu. So it's, it's, uh, it's interesting, this, this tshuva of the Chassam Sofer. But anyway, nevertheless, the Yorachayim HaKadosh says, as they would actually be building, they would say, Kasher Tziva Hashem as Moshe. They would use those words out loud. Like we say, We give a context to the mitzvah that we're doing. We're not laboring in some mundane act of sewing, building, construction, embroidering, but rather it's L'shem Kudsho Brichu. It's for the sake of Hashem. They would say these words out loud, we are doing this like when you make matzah you say l'shem mitzvah's matzah you're selling tzitzis l'shem mitzvah's tzitzis to do something l'shma to be dedicating it for the proper and right way Odnira and the Orchayim gives another reason but we don't have time for let's look at uh, just maybe one or two more comments um a beautiful Orachayim here. Uh, there's no more time. Okay, let's try to do quickly. There's a beautiful Orachayim on Pasuk Lamed Beis. Perak Lamed Gimel, Pasuk, uh, Perak Lamed Tes, chapter 39, verse 32. They finished everything. They did everything as God commanded Moshe. So they did. Remember the Rav Palm? So they did. They finished what they sought out to do. They finished what they started. So the Yorachayim here picks up on Vayasu B'nai Yisrael. What do you mean B'nai Yisrael? 600,000, 2 to 3 million people altogether? They weren't all involved in the construction. How could you describe that all the Jewish people completed this project of the Mishkan? It was B'tzalel and his team, his committee that actually did the building. The answer is Shlucho Shaladam Kamoso. When someone acts on your behalf, it's, it's as if you did it. But B'tzalah was not representing the people didn't appoint him their agent. God appointed him the agent. Since they accepted his appointment, it's as if they appointed him to be their 
representative, the shliach, and shlucho shaladim kamoso, when someone is a representative, it's as if they did it themselves. Od nira, kikan asa akasa mechaberes haklalas bekiyam ha-Torah. Vehera ki b'nei Yisrael yizkil zel ha-zeh. V'atorah nisna l'tzkayim bechlalas Yisrael. Kolechad yasa yechol shabiyodov yizkil zel ha-zeh. Or, the idea is that, you're right, Every one of us has faults and fallibilities, shortcomings and misgivings. None of us are perfect or complete. None of us do every mitzvah to perfection. But when you combine all of us, we complement one another. My strength is your weakness, and your strength is my weakness. And when you put us all together as a people, we complement one another to be able to achieve perfection in the performance of mitzvahs. So that's what the Torah is expressing, says the Rechaim, Vayasu b'nei Yisrael. It's as if everyone did it together. V'ulaiki l'zeh remez ba'omro, v'yahavta l'reicha kamocha. Perish l'tzad shu kamocha. That's why we say love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what makes him like you? The answer is the fact that you come together to complement one another means you want that person to succeed. Because their success is your success. So you want to love them as if they're you because you want them to be like you because... Because you compliment one another, they are like you, and therefore you should love them as yourself. And you find this in the concept of mitzvahs in general. No one Jew can fulfill every mitzvah. Why? Because the Yisrael can't do what a Kohen's commanded. A Kohen's limited in being able to do some of the other things that a non-Kohen can do. If you live outside of Israel, you can't do what people who live in Israel can do. Women can't do certain things other people can do. Others can't do some of the mitzvahs women can do. I can't bring a carbon on Yuledis. I can't bring the sacrifice of a woman who gave birth. Every seg- there are different segments of the Jewish people, and there's no one person who can fulfill all 613 mitzvahs. So then what do you do? If we're commanded in all mitzvahs, if all mitzvahs have value, how do we collaborate? How do we connect? So as if we fulfilled all mitzvahs, if we're limited in what mitzvahs we can do because of the category we belong to, the answer is collaboration. By being together and complementing one another, it's as if we've all performed all mitzvos. And so the Yorachayim is saying, that's why it says, Vayasu b'nei Yisrael kechol Jewish people did everything God commanded. It was as if the Jewish people did it all together in collaboration. There's another Kliyakar I wanted to look at, but we're out of time. I'll just point it out to you. It's the Kliyakar in Pasuk Mem Gimel, verse 43. He points out that part of the time we refer to the work of the Mishkan as Avodas HaMishkan and part of the time we refer to it as Malachas HaMishkan. Why do we sometimes call it Avoda? Sometimes we call it Avoda, work, and sometimes Malacha, labor. Why do we switch back and forth and which is it? And the Kliyakar develops a beautiful idea that the construction of the Mishkan parallels the creation of the world. Kol Malacha, Malacha is a reference to creation of the world. How is the Mishkan a recreation in miniature of the world? Look at the Kliyakar, he explains it very beautifully. We are done for today. Have a fantastic Shabbos.